You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Real Vision Daily Briefing on Friday. Hi, Ed Harrison here. I'm talking to Real Vision founder and CEO, Rao Powell. Rao, it is great to talk to you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you on a Friday, Ed. Yes, and uh, you know, uh, you know, actually, there's not a ton to talk about in the global macro world. Uh, I, I don't uh, excuse me if like I have brain farts, etc. I'm looking at your Twitter, and I'm just like five hundred and fifty-seven thousand followers. That, that's really the. I'm, I'm sorry, but that's the number that's that's I'm thinking about. I'm not thinking about five percent inflation, which we're gonna get to. My but- mom sets up a lot of accounts. It's 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 amazing, and I think you know uh, just going to the macro picture, uh, global macro. It's because we're in a, in a in a new world, uh, and I think that you know my goal in this conversation is to weave a web in terms of you know the lack of volatility in the global macro world, the inflation print that we just had now, and then the new worlds that we're talking about in terms of the exponential age and crypto and all of that. Let's see if we can get that all into one little paradigm, if we will. Yeah, love it. Let's go for it. Yeah. So, you know, Rao, let's talk, let's start out with inflation. I mean, because really, if you can think about the data that's coming out of the United States or out of the global economy, that's really all anyone thinks about today is, is inflation. What, what are your thoughts there? It's kind of hilarious because, right, this time last year when the world stopped, We knew that when the economy restarts, the year-on-year rate of change of economic data is going to look ridiculous. And all of us said, oh, my God, the inflation prints are going to look like 4%, 5%, et cetera, et cetera. And everyone's like, yeah. The Fed was saying, listen, the data's going to look stupid when it gets to this time of year. Everyone goes, oh, yeah. Comes this time of year, everyone goes, oh, panic, inflation. And it's kind of madness, right? Now, So there's a couple of things going on. Uh, I've talked a bit about this before, is obviously there are still supply issues. So we would put supply issues in transitory inflation issues. Right, definitely. Restarting of the economy, that kind of stuff, the inability to get labor, so some wages go up, uh, rent prices catching up, you know, all of this, transitory. Doesn't mean it goes away again. It's kind of the increase in prices actually sticks, but the rate of change slows down very quickly. But the bulk of what's going on is the fact that in June last year, we had the exact low print in inflation, if you look at the CPI index itself. So a year later, even if it had gone back to where it was in, let's say, January of last year, it would have showed a massive gain. But because of the supply constraints and everything else, the gains look huge. But it's just year-on-year comparisons. So if Um, If we go out a bit further, we will see the rate of inflation come down anyway. So this was always going to be the high print, this June number, because of the comparison versus last year, and then incrementally, it should soften. So this is what the Fed are talking about transitory. 
And the actual truth is we don't know what's going to happen next year. And that's where the real debate should lie, not this year. This year, it's almost impossible to have generated meaningful sticky inflation. And my view for a long time, as most people who know me, is I'm generally a disinflationist. I don't believe you can generate structural inflation. I think that the monetary printing is a debasement issue, which is a different type of inflation than the CPI thing. So I'm going to show you some charts on how I'm framing this, okay. just so we've got something to chat about. So if I'm going to share my screen now, this is some work I did from GMI, right? like 22 pages about, um, about inflation. And my conclusion is, is, yes, there is commodity inflation. Yes, there's inflation somewhere. But generally, a lot of what we're seeing is fleeting because of the numbers. But I think there's another thing that I want to kind of own a bit is the fact that I think that global growth is going to slow in the second half of the year, which yeah. is a surprise and is what I think the bond market is telling you. Right. Yes. That's where I want to go, too. That's great. So everybody's screaming, oh, my God, bonds are manipulated. Can't you see the inflation? Inflation's out of control. No, the inflation number's a false number. Where is the real rate of inflation in the economy? We currently don't know. Um, so we can't really tell. But the bond market is saying, actually, the inflation pressure is reasoning off. Why? So let's, I'm going to show you why. One is China has started slowing. So its credit cycle leads its PMI and its business cycle. And ISM follows because China is actually the largest manufacturer in the world. So this actually drives a lot of um, the global business cycle now. It's not just the US. So we can see that the China economy has rolled over. And that tells us I'm ISM later in the year should be peaking out too. Now, whether it's done it already or whether it lags a bit, not clear yet, but we'll find out. But it just tells me the balance of probabilities are that the US economy, so the ISM purchasing managers survey is correlated to GDP, suggests that the peak of this post-recovery bounce is in. And that's normal. And I'll come on to that in a bit. It's actually normal to see a slowdown after the initial recovery. The Citibank Economic Surprises Index for China, which is a measure of their economic data coming out better or worse than expected, is now coming out significantly worse than expected versus economists' forecast. That's another measure to say China's slowing down faster than people expected, which was that previous chart. What's interesting is the US is starting to see the same. So its economic surprises index has just hit zero, and it's likely to go negative, which tells us the economists are going to have over-forecasted growth, which is what the bond market's starting to tell us, because yields have started falling in the middle of this big inflation print, because bonds look forward and try and speak the truth about the economy. But there's some structural issues that haven't gone away. In this, and I've talked about this for a long time, part of the solvency thesis is the fact that people aren't going to get jobs back again. Not that, I mean, I know there's a record amount of um, job ads out there, but the reality is, is there's a jobs mismatch now because not all of these retail jobs are coming back. There's whole swathes of the economy that's not coming back. And so we can see that the US employment population um, into, in the labor force is actually below it was um, you know, at the lowest level it's been for a very, very long time. 
And that's concerning. People are basically coming out of the economy. That's also to do with baby boomers retiring because they can't get a job again. If they got laid off, the chance of a baby boomer at 65 years old getting a job is pretty close to zero now. Right. So, Unless they go to McDonald's. Right. That's right. So they're coming out of the labor force, and that's deflationary because they now have a fixed amount of assets to be able to set, um, to live off. So they tend to spend less. So it tends to be highly deflationary. Also, in the in the midst of all of that, is the fact that we've also got these um, all of the the various things that stop people having to pay rent or getting other subsidies and payments on mortgages. All of this stuff all comes back with a vengeance from from now until the end of the year. So a lot of people who've been used to a spending pattern that had more incremental income are suddenly going to find they've got less, probably slower for growth. And I don't know if I, yeah, um, the labor force participation rate, which is another way of looking at, you know, how many people are actually in America or in the workforce, it's super, super low as these baby boomers come out and the structural unemployment. And that's leading to velocity of money remaining extremely subdued. They're very correlated um, to the baby boomers because they tend to save assets, put them in a pension plan, or save them and not spend them, and it, it tends to lead to low inflation. So those things haven't gone away. Also, if I look at the chart of bond yields going back to 1962, every time we've had a recession, there's been a little spike in bond yields afterwards. And that's the rebound, inflation's coming, oh my God, phase. That happens every time. It's behavioral because they see this economic data coming out stronger because it's versus the comparison of the, the previous dip. And what happens is that inflation dies very quickly. So in 2010, we saw it die off very quick after the recession had finished and bond yields collapsed, 2001 uh, and 1991 as well, and actually 1980, uh, 1984. But just using the 90s with the kind of active Fed and the way they are, this is a very typical pattern, and it's because the market over-anticipates recovery. So it, it, it anticipates recovery faster and then gets it wrong in the end. So that process means that we should expect bond yields to fall, not rise, not yet. So then I, I like to use DMARC indicators and these bunch of green nines you see on here. This is the monthly chart. And every time you get a nine signal, you, you tend to get a reversal. It's kind of a pre-signal to a reversal. Now, if you look at the nines on the top of, you know, this is the chart, the famous chart of truth of, you know, the bond yields over the last 30 years, right. is when you get to that nine signal, it reverses. And we've just put one in. In fact, it's got a 100% track record there and thereabouts for, for calling the top in yields. So contrary to expectations of every single economist, the market is suggesting, and some of my economic research, is that inflation is going to be less of a concern. And that's usually because you get a slowdown in growth that happens in the first part of a recovery that scares people a bit. And they start thinking, my God, are we going to have a double dip? Usually that's a false narrative too. But yields don't recover because the central bank and the government will stimulate. So my guess is economic growth slows, economic data comes off, the central bank and the government stimulate harder than we expect. Um, and so that's, that's how I'm framing inflation, which is quite different to most people's views.
Yeah, I think that is very interesting. And I have heard a little bit of hubbub about people saying, wait a minute, you know, uh, bond, bond markets are telling us something that's not just technical, that when we're breaking uh, to below, you know, the 100-day moving average, uh, is uh, it, we're below that now. We're below the 50-day moving average, obviously. That tells you that the momentum is in the other direction. And just to uh, add to that, the 200-day the moving average for the 10-year yield is 1.16%. That's quite a bit lower than we are right now. So that gives you a sense of the room to run that we have if that if this continues. Yeah, and and uh, you know I'm not saying this is a home run trade. I'm not saying that this is a economic catastrophe. I'm saying it's a normal phase that bond yields have got ahead of themselves. Growth expectations have got ahead of themselves, and I think it would not be unreasonable for yields to come back down to 1%. Um, you know, they need to break, break about 140 first. Did that, they they go significantly lower. So, you know, I, I think the most people who love an inflation narrative, some people love an inflation narrative, some people love a deflation narrative. We're all born one over the other generally. But the inflation narrative says the bond market's wrong, look at the numbers. The bond market, which tends to be more disinflationary, um, says, oh, the bond market's right, the numbers are peaked. So we'll see this play out. And it's going to it's going to lead into how we allocate capital to other markets. That's the important part. It's not about the bond trade. It's about what trades that we do in that economic environment. And I know you'd spoken to Darius Dale about some of this stuff, and he's also, through his different ways of looking at stuff, um, looking at a, um, a disinflationary trend later on in the year, too, from some of his indicators. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. I think that he said that we're in the reflationary phase based upon his indicators. Uh, you might get uh, a flip to uh, what he calls the Goldilocks uh, period, but that's just a false dawn. You could flip very quickly uh, to the deflationary uh, aspect, and, uh, and and then that's a very uh, you know reversal. Yeah, so in my terms, the Goldilocks phase is, okay, inflation's not so bad, and growth looks pretty good, right? So the ISM remains elevated, inflation prints start coming off a bit, right? That is great market for risk assets. Exactly. That's the Goldilocks phase. But what he's saying, and I'm saying, from doing different work, reaching the same conclusion is, actually, the slowdown in inflation and growth is going to be more pronounced than people expect, and people are going to start flipping into the deflation trade later in the year, which is buying bonds, maybe buying utilities, or whatever it may be. And so what happens, by the way, because when we think about the exponential age and we think about new technologies, what happens to those parts of the market in that environment? So over the longer run, they are not driven by the business cycle in terms of their long-term logarithmic trend. Within that trend, it's driven by the business cycle. They have been underperforming recently. We can use whether it's Cathie Wood's Arc or many of the big tech plays have underperformed value, for example. And that's because the inflation narrative means that people who were using a discounted cash flow model for these tech businesses said, well, if there's more inflation, then these things that look like zero coupon bonds to infinity now have to be repriced. So they stopped going up for a while, many corrected. But if we're going to take down inflation, First, we get to the Goldilocks phase, which is like you can basically buy anything and it goes up. So that's great. 
And then if it starts switching to the, actually, the quality of growth is not as high as we thought, these things are going to explode. And it's the same gold actually trades in a very similar way as well, emerging markets too. So I think we're going to sit, well, emerging markets are happy in the Goldilocks phase. But that's, so I think it's, we're setting up to be able to do this exponential age trade properly as a great entry point. ARK looks like it might be trying to break out early yet, but the bond market will lead the way and it'll tell us the bond market sells off in yield terms further, i.e. bonds rally. I think all of these will break out. Interesting. Now, um, I, I told you that I, I was I was trying to connect everything that we're doing together. Uh, before we go further on that, uh, as, as soon as we start talking about the exponential age, I think immediately about some of the programming that we have coming up. One of the things that comes to mind is the festival of learning that we're doing. I know one of our colleagues, Shannon, she was you know saying, "Ral, if you want to get on there and talk about this." Was Shannon this time? It was Laura who was policing me. Hey, oh, is that right? The guest until today. And I've already done it, and Laura caught me this morning and got it taken out of a video. So anyway, so I promised Laura, firstly, the Festival of Learning, anybody watching this, everything about financial markets, whether you're Stan Druckermiller, George Soros, or you're a student, or you're new to markets generally, we all learn. There's no final result where you get a certificate and you're now a master. So learning is everything. And you can either learn from a textbook, or you can learn from the best of the best who've done it learned it, learned the hard lessons. The festival of learning is all about that. Everything, how great investors get it right, how they get it wrong, how they think about things, how they size their positions, all of the things that takes to be a good investor, including the psychology of investment. So we put together this unbelievable three-day event with literally all the rock stars of Real Vision and amazing stories like um, Howard Marks talking to his son. His son actually converted him into an exponential age person. And Howard was this great value investor, right? A business cycle value investor. Now has gone, actually, I've changed my mind. And I know that from many, many of the big hedge funds that I know. Uh, you know, People who've been leaders of the industry for 30 years have gone, no, it's it's Tech is the answer. This is where the returns are coming from, and you know, and crypto is part of it. So that whole thing is going to be great. But the big announcement is, anybody who's been following Real Vision for the last six, seven years has heard me talk about behavioral economics ad infinitum. And we've never had a behavioral economist on Real Vision. So behavioral economics changes the whole study of economics, because economics is currently about models. Well, behavioral economics is basically sociology meets economics and big data. So you can analyze how people are likely to react and extrapolate that forward and create incentive systems, behavioral incentive systems. This understanding of behavioral economics, A, won a couple of uh, Nobel Prizes already, and it changed the whole face of the global business model. So Google, Facebook, Amazon, Twitter, everything, Shopify, everything is based around behavioral economics. That's why you've got those little badges. That's why you've got a like button. That's right. why you've got a comment section. It's all behavioral stuff to keep you engaged, whether it's to serve you ads or make sure you stay on a platform. So why is that important? Well, it's also happening at government level. Right. So governments are using behavioral economics to create incentive structures to get people to behave in certain ways. 
China has used it at mass. It's used a weird behavioural because they've got negative reinforcement models when generally the positive reinforcement behavioural model works better. So that's getting a like button, gives you the dopamine. So um, governments are starting to do this. And we've already heard Benoit Curé from the ECB, to, um, now the BIS, talking about, well, can we use smart contracts, CBDC, central bank digital currencies, to create behavioural incentives? Can we use behavioural economics on huge scale to create better fiscal and monetary policy? My guess is, of course you can. Some people won't like it because it means you can manipulate population because propaganda is basically um, behavioral economics, as is advertising, which are basically right. two sides of the same coin. So this is going to become very important because it's going to how it's going to how it's going to be how we run economies. It's how we run business models, and the person that we've got to talk to us is the guy who sat down with all of Silicon Valley back in two thousand and. 10 or 12, I think it was, and taught them the secrets of this and said, if you apply this to social media, you can basically control outcomes. And out of this became the nefarious uses of, of stuff like Facebook, but also the positive uses and the, the addictive behavior of platforms. One guy taught them all this. Amazon is actually a set of behavior incentive systems. And Bitcoin is probably the best behavioral incentive system of all because you get rewarded on the network with money. And this one guy is a guy called Daniel Kahneman, who uh, wrote Thinking, Nobel, wrote Think Prize. Nobel Prize winner. Nobel Prize, and basically the god of behavioral economics. And to get him on to talk about behavioral economics, incentive systems, biases, and all of the things that he has done a lifetime of research on is going to be fascinating. But what's even more fascinating is we've got the smartest guy in the room to interview him, which is Josh Wolf. Oh, so, I thought you were going to say it was you. You were interviewing him as soon as he said that. Oh, I'm an idiot. I don't know how to talk to Daniel Kahneman, but Josh does. So Josh is going to interview uh, Daniel Kahneman, and then in turn, he's going to interview um, Neil Ferguson. Nice. So we're going to get this incredible triumvirate of these three people talking, which is and they're all joining a panel. So Neil, Daniel, and um, Josh Wolf are on a panel together in a three-way conversation. So that's epic. So I've waited for this day forever. I've been <laughs> begging Shannon and Laura to get Daniel Kahneman because I want to hear him talk. So... Um, Anybody who wants to join this thing, just so everybody knows, if I don't do this, Laura will kill me. So, Laura, this is for you. Um, if you're a Real Vision Pro or Plus member, you're free. So just make sure you click on the um, registration, register for the event. Anybody else, if you're an essential member or anybody in the public, you can get a, you can buy a ticket um, for $499, or you can upgrade your essential membership for $499 and get the whole ticket. So basically, you're arbing the whole thing. It's right. You get basically the ticket and you get Real Vision Plus membership for free. So I'd do that if I were you. It's a pretty smart way of doing it. Tickets, uh, prices go up on June the 16th. Uh, they go up to about $599. So I get in quick. Thousands of people join. There'll be Slack channels open, everybody chatting with each other. 
lots of abilities for Q&A, and you're going to learn tons of stuff. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So, what day did you say this is happening? I don't know. Laura's, Laura's <laughs> going to kill me. Um, See, because I don't know that. I did know, by the way, that it was uh, Daniel Kahneman, that he was involved. I did not know about Josh Wolf and Neil Ferguson. Yeah, and also, so anybody wants to look at what we're doing here with the Festival of Learning, it's really unique. It's really Real Vision. It's absolutely incredible. Go to realvision.com forward slash festival. The dates of the festival are June 23rd and 25th. Thanks, Nick. You've just saved me from Laura killing me. Um, so 23rd to 25th, realvision.com forward slash festival. And look, it's, we did one last year. It was a runaway smash hit success where literally thousands of people just thanked us and said, my God, that was so helpful. So I don't want to be a downer, but uh, when you say this, you were saying some people won't like this. Uh, I want to talk about the people who don't like this because this whole concept of manipulating stuff immediately makes me think about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and getting out of the fiat system. I mean, as soon as you started talking about incentives and uh, central bank digital currency, I was thinking about uh, this guy, Ken Rogoff, who's talking about using negative interest rates in, in, with central bank digital currency. And so immediately I thought about, um, I thought about uh, Bitcoin. So the reason is partially because, you know, we have a ton of questions that are, are loading up here. And I, I know that you talked to Chris Dark. I, I listened to uh, some of the stuff that you were talking to on Twitter. Uh, and you answered this question, but I think you should answer it here about, do we really care? about uh, El Salvador. Here's the first question. I think it was actually the first question. Uh, Mutsher Hussein, he said, Ed Harrison Rao, what's your thoughts on the recent correction in Bitcoin? That's number one. That, that's a separate issue. But the issue I'm asking you about, Rao, is an El Salvador making Bitcoin a legal tender. So the, the Bitcoin correction question, I've said all the way through, you're going to expect a 50% correction in the middle of this. We've had a 50%. Could it go to 60%? Is it finished here? Who knows? But it's going to take a while to digest, so it's not going to rally and go in a V-shape. But in a few months, my guess, and I have no idea, my guess and all the work I've ever done on this is that we should be seeing higher prices for the rest of the year. So around this phase, buy the dip if you can. You know, If you're able to, again, don't use leverage. Be cautious. Understand what risk you're taking. But I think it's a great opportunity. So that's the general rule of thumb for that. El Salvador. The honest answer is, I don't know. I know everyone's got a hot take. Oh my God. The point being is, it is, they're allowing it as, um, not as their main currency, but as, a, as another one. So I, you can use it. And they've said um, all businesses, et cetera, have to, be, have to accept it. The issue is here is El Salvador is an interesting case because their currency is actually, their, their economy is dollarized. Right, exactly. So they're not having currency volatility. They're not Argentina. Right? So they're not looking for an escape from currency volatility, which people are confusing it with. 
So why are they doing it? Because their currency is not being devalued. So they're not living with an economic shock. A lot of it is remittances, of which the strike network is great for remittance payments. So a lot of it's for that. And also it gives them access to a saving product that has historically done very well. It's a 213% return a year over the last 12 years. But the flip side is it's incredibly volatile. So if you're a poor farmer and you've suddenly made what looks like you know, $1,000 because you, you put your savings in Bitcoin and it's gone up 300%, and then your savings fall by 70% in the crypto winter, that's going to scare a lot of people. Um, and if they're not used to currency volatility because they've got a currency board now, I'm not sure how good that is. Um, I think, but I think it's interesting. I think people will figure out how to use it, what its use case is. The point being is everyone jumps to a conclusion. I'm not going to jump to a conclusion. I think at the margin, it's good for Bitcoin. Clearly, it's driving the narrative. Clearly, a bunch of other countries are looking at it. I've confirmed conversations on that front as well. Everybody's looking at this. People are trying to figure out how it works for them. And that's great. Is this the panacea? Is this the great, you know, a nation moving into Bitcoin? No. But I tell you what was genius out of it is everybody's now started using volcanoes. Bitcoin is a volcano because when it came to, well, you should mine this for your reserves, now it gets interesting. Should an economy like El Salvador have Bitcoin in the reserves? Without question, they should. But how do they get it? without spending other money from their reserves, and they probably don't have enough reserves. And the nice part is they figured out they can mine it because they got volcanoes, and those volcanoes have massive geothermal springs. So basically, free green electricity. And so now El Salvador and pretty much anybody else with a volcano with that kind of nice setup can mine Bitcoin at a country level, generate a asset that they can put on their reserve balance sheet that will grow over time and protect them from the general devaluation of the US dollar in fiat money terms, the debasement effect. So at that level, brilliant. And remittance level, brilliant. Everything else, unproven. You know, the interesting bit in what you were saying is it goes back to uh, the global macro economy and also a political side of things, because there is a sort of, I would call it an anti-dollar uh, view to this, i.e., here's a country that was dollarized. It can de-dollarize, if you will, by going to Bitcoin. And, you know, this is a test case in that sense. Do you think that uh, you know this is part of a nexus to uh, prevent uh, the dollar from if, continuing if its you, hegemony? If you dollarized to a seventy, if you de-dollarized and adopted a seventy-volt asset, you're <laughs> going to utterly destroy your economy because nobody has the ability to forecast or hedge currency in that kind of market, and it's very expensive to do so. So we need to understand moneyness, really, in this equation. What works as money? What works as store of value? What works as a reserve asset? And don't confuse the whole lot, because you are utterly going to destroy every industry in, in El Salvador if you can completely convert to a 70-volt currency. And the moment the currency goes to the roof, their cost change, collapse their cost change, imports go up, imports go down by such huge swings. I mean, 
that would literally hole out everybody. So, right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So talk to me a little bit about Ether uh, and uh, Bitcoin, because I know that you are, are legging into uh, Ethereum from Bitcoin. But, you know, ever since this El Salvador announcement, there's been a relative change. When I look at the, the assets, you know, I look at all of the assets, you know, on a weak basis, many of them are down. Bitcoin has seen a bid. Do you think that's just a, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, spike on the news and then that's going to fade or is there something going on there? No, I think, you know, people allocated more to Ethereum because it had been going up. Both spaces were missing a positive news story. Bitcoin gets the news story. People allocate, reallocate money from Ethereum into Bitcoin. Pretty normal stuff. And the ETH Bitcoin cross went quite far. It's got a significant resistance at about 0.08. I think once it breaks that, it goes much, much higher. But I think a correction where Bitcoin outperforms for a few months, two months, three months, I think would be healthy and normal. Um, I think then we start coming in to the new ETH 1559 token um, and the changes that that's probably pretty good story for ETH. So I think ETH tends to outperform. We had uh, Kirill Sokolov interviewed Joey Krug on the platform. Great interview as ever. What's amazing is Kirill is, you know, Kirill's been around a long time. He's not, he's, he's not a spring chicken. <laughs> he's been all, you know, and many people consider him, you know, from traditional financial markets. He's been all over this crypto thing for a long time. You know, him and I are good friends, and I've always been amazed about his thought leadership in this space. So he interviews Jerry Krug as the opposite end of the age group and as an equal um, outperforming success. And Joey was actually talking, his view as well is probably that Ethereum outperforms as we start moving into this uh, next early next year into the um, proof of stake mechanism. Uh, you know, it'll probably be a buy the rumor, sell the fact. You know, you get there and then everybody's, it's all in the price. But so I think it's Bitcoin first, then ETH. And when ETH goes, all of the tokens go up as well. So we're going to see some crazy times ahead. I'm still remain extremely positive. Right. Now, uh, I'm looking at the time because you told me you have a hard stop at uh, five o'clock and you told me that I took you a full hour the next, last time that we spoke. Uh, it was only 55 minutes. Hours, so <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to go through lots of questions now. Okay, uh, have you answer some of these questions? Because I think there's some good yeah. questions here. Uh, there's one on the Indian stock market. I don't know how much you follow it, but Alex M. was asking, you know, I've been waiting patiently for a pullback in Indian stocks. He says, when, when, when do you... Uh, when would be the right time to buy INDA, that's e- an ETF, and thanks for rec- the recommendation regarding KRBN. Keep up the good work. It is greatly appreciated. I, I, I have found struggled to buy India for exactly this reason. It never gets cheap, it never corrects enough, and never stays down. So I don't know. I'm still focused on crypto, so I've not put anything on in India. I think the only way to do it is average in. I mean, I I just don't know how to do it because I've struggled with this over the last 10 years and I've been invested in India on and off. I mean, it just goes up. And every time it corrects, it corrects really sharp. You think, oh, great, it'll it'll stay down for a while. It doesn't, just goes back up again. So I I guess that's what happens when you are financializing 1.3 billion people (laughs) and they're putting money into their pension plans. Stock market doesn't stay down for very long. So uh, 
the answer is I don't know how to do it. So in that case, I just tend to average in when I'm terrified that I'm going to look like the idiot buying the top. I just average in over, let's say, over three months. Just do a bit every right. week. See where you get to. Um, you know, now back to the real economy in the U.S., this whole uh, you know, mortgage or rather a treasury down. The, I'm, I'm relating to what Thomas says to that. Uh, he's asking this. He says, hello, Rao. Uh, with the eviction for it was yeah hello <laughs> uh, with the eviction foreclosure ban set to end in less than three weeks what is your take on the housing market uh if the 30-year continues to catch a bid could that even uh more fuel uh, put more fuel to this red hot market so look i think this all this forbearance stuff and all of this these are some of the mechanisms why growth is going to slow down i think there is a the market is not going to slow down in housing because, as I've explained before, if you divide the housing market or uh, house prices by the Fed balance sheet, which is a measure of debasement of currency, uh, it's not about the, the mechanism of how money moves around. It's just about how do you think about debasement. It actually just means the house price has gone sideways. So what you're seeing is the excess money printing is lowering the purchasing power of the dollar versus hard assets. That's what you're seeing. It's now being exacerbated by BlackRock and the other uh, Blackstone and everybody else buying massive amounts of property. Because as property goes up in value and wages haven't gone up, part of the problem I've been talking about for a long time, wages haven't gone up enough, it means you're going to turn the US into a renter's economy. So, um, you know, and you know, you lived in Germany. It's pretty normal in Germany. It's pretty normal in France. Right. Different countries have different ways of doing things. As long as you channel some money into some savings, that you have an asset at the end. So the Germans have a higher savings rate, but they don't own their houses. So they're just different different ways of approaching the same end goal. But America looks like it's going to become a nation of renters if this continues, because the issue with wages, driven by debt, demographics, um, globalization, and technology, uh, is creating all of these. And, and yeah, it's creating a, a pressure on wages overall. So the housing market is not going to slow down. There's nothing going to slow it down. Um, people are still looking backwards to 2008, which was a very different levered market. This is not a levered market so much anymore, but an institutional market. And yeah, it's not good, but it is what it is. Very interesting. Now, I have a bone to pick with you a little bit about this debasement thing, because I'm looking at it slightly differently. I'm, uh, And by the way, this is somewhat informed by a, a conversation I had with Warren Moser, which is going to be on the platform. That. How did that go? That was great. I thought it was it was very thought provoking, to be honest. I mean, uh, he, he, he comes at it from such a different perspective that really in real time to get your head around certain things, you just need to be focused uh, on, OK, what did you just say? Uh, let me see if I can digest that before I ask you the next question. Um, the one thing that I thought was interesting, and, and you know, he didn't say this in the interview, but it was before. It was about he uh, he talks about the right hand, uh, the right hand pocket and the left hand pocket in terms of uh, M2 as an example. What he's basically saying is that look, you know, uh, all all fiat currency uh, money is fungible as far as the government's concerned. And when M2 is rising at an, a ridiculous rate because the Fed is printing money, adding to its balance sheet, really all it's doing is it's swapping one asset for another. Yes. Uh, and and so is... ultimately, 
the real economy impact from his perspective is one that is is deflationary because they're sucking interest income out of the real economy. They're taking interest income out of the private sector and keeping it at the Fed when it could be in the other economy. So is Q, so this is a, a good question. Is QE deflationary or inflationary? I also happen to believe it's probably at the margin deflationary. Um, because as you drive down interest rates as well, it means that um, anybody who lives off interest has less interest. So you have yeah. less recycling of interest. And you, know, and you can see that in a number of different ways. But the issue I have generally with the, with the MNT construct is that I think there was, I've always said there's an escape valve. And the escape valve for me was the value of the currency. I agree. And this is what it's showing. And it wasn't. We all got it wrong. I, I certainly got it wrong. We thought dollar, i.e. the DXY dollar index or dollar against the euro, dollar down would be that. But then you get to a world of how can you have any currency going down? Because they're all debasing their currencies. And then you understand that's why asset prices are rising, because the value of the currency is going down. So the MMT argument, which is it's net neutral for the economy, maybe it's slightly disinflationary. Absolutely fine. But what it is doing is lowering the purchasing power of the fiat currencies against restricted supply assets, which is why art goes up, um, antique cars go up, um, gold goes up, diamonds go up, Bitcoin goes up, and stuff like that. So it's that. And equities go up and real estate goes up. And let me give you a mechanism here. Uh, I'll call it the displacement mechanism. You know, let's say that I'm buying, I'm in an asset class and I'm getting four or five percent, and the Fed, you know, steps on my asset class and now I'm getting two percent. What am I going to do? Am I going to sit there with two percent or am I going to chase yield, chase duration, and chase risk? I'm obviously going to chase yield, duration, and risk, and I'm going to go into other asset classes, and, and that's when, going to drive up the price of those assets. And when you're chasing risk, and you look behind you, and the Fed says, don't worry, I've got your back. Right? If anything goes wrong, I'll print more money. You are now highly incentivized to take risk. Because right now, we've got this weird setup that if anything happens to the stock market, because of its connections with the economy, the Fed will step in. If the economy weakens, which would normally weaken the stock market, the Fed will step in. So we've created this ridiculous call effect for the entire market. There's no structural way the market can go down and stay down. It can be in a sideways trend and fall, you know, 15% over three years, that kind of stuff. Or it can have a sharp VAR shock, but it will not last. Because the Fed just jam money back into the market, you debase the currency more, the denominator effect kicks in, and assets go up. It's a real change of mentality to realize that because everybody was looking for the doom, but the doom is actually now the upside. If we're now in an exponential age economy with this weird skewed risk reward to the upside. And I know some people don't like it. They get angry about it. I get it. It is what it is. And we have to invest accordingly. Does it help people? Does it screw people over? Yes. Does it hurt the one, the ninety-nine percent? Yes. So then you have to do something about it. Um, 
if you can do anything about it. And that's why you know, one of the passions I have for crypto, because you can buy a small fraction of Bitcoin equivalent right. to the same bet that I've got in my net worth that they can take. We're on a level playing field then. We're both protecting ourselves and trying to create wealth at the same pace. That's great. Now, Ed. So, uh, you know, since uh, we have to protect ourselves, I have one more question. I'm going to protect myself by asking my question, and that's on NFT. You've got 30 seconds. Go. <laughs> okay. Um, I know we're going to have NFT week, actually, here. So as soon as you mention, uh, you know, uh, that I can buy a fraction, I immediately think of uh, tokenization. And the fact that tokenization allows me as an individual to buy a, a, a share in a larger asset, which I would normally not be able to afford. Talk to me about NFTs and whether or not that's a bubble or an opportunity or both. Do you remember we talked about this hard stop at four o'clock? So <laughs> I'm going to, and it's now four o'clock. <laughs> I have to go. The NFTs are a fantastic way to own a proportional share of something that is tradable. So you and I could own a share of a Picasso and you could put in 10 grand and I can put in 20 grand and I can sell it to somebody else or a share of it. And that's amazing. It empowers people that not only the rich get richer. That to me is the important thing. NFTs on random pieces of art are a bubble, but most of that bubble popped anyway. NFTs are here to stay. And they'll be used for tons of different things. And it's the use cases that come out of after selling art, like real estate and other things that are going to get super interesting. And then, my friend, I'm going to have to go for the weekend because I got a call. Um, Excellent. Thank you very much, Rao Powell. It is always a pleasure. Yeah, we could have talked for hours as ever, Ed. We should do that. We should do a three hour daily briefing once just for the hell of it. Um, everybody, have a fantastic weekend. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.